Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, you ever notice how many fascists there are when you dehistoricize that term and are willing to call people secret or soon to be fascists because <laughs> your politics are about marginalizing the working class instead of uniting them for better material conditions? Also, <laughs> How long can you have a migraine before you need to go to the doctor? Oh, I would say 24 hours. So like not five days? No, you should not be avoiding the All doctor. All right, let me see what Richard's up to tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing great. I've been watching basketball for the past five days with a crazy eye pain. Yeah, I bet you're having a lot of eye pain for that. I watched a little bit of hockey on my back deck. It was pretty fancy. I was able to put my stupid cable service on my iPad and actually walk, watch a little bit of hockey on the back deck, and then I felt really depressed about sports in general and just the world, and it just made me very, very unhappy. First day, I was real into it, and then the second day, the minute I turned on a basketball game, I thought, these guys should all be way farther apart from each other <laughs> and wearing masks and probably not playing basketball. <laughs> dude, what, every time I saw a check in the corner, I was like, oh, dude, don't do that. On today's show, after being elected and re-elected president of Ecuador and serving eight years the Democratic Socialist presidency and administration of Rafael Correa had reached its term limit. Correa was succeeded by his vice president during his first term, or right after his first, or second term in office. His new, the new president would be his former vice president, Lenin Moreno. After narrowly winning election in the second round of voting in 2016, Moreno became president. However, upon entering office, he and his administration quickly shifted from their democratic socialist policies that they had shared with Korea to those of neoliberalism. Since Moreno took office and started implementing neoliberal policies, as today's guest points out, poverty and inequality have been rising over the last two years, and the Moreno administration has been hit by a series of corruption scandals. On top of all that, the Moreno government reacted slowly to the pandemic, even covering up the severity of the outbreak, which would impact the entire region's public health. This all would seem to be a perfect time for the return of Rafael Correa as president of Ecuador, but not so fast. Correa is currently living in self-imposed exile in Belgium, as the Moreno-controlled judiciary has applied the tactic of lawfare, as we have seen employed by U.S. interests in Brazil and elsewhere in Latin America, as the Pope has condemned, to unjustly use the justice system to criminalize dissent and any challenge to international monetary fund austerity programs forcefully imposed upon countries like Ecuador. We'll find out how a slow-motion coup is already taking place in Ecuador ahead of next February's elections when we speak with, speak with Guillaume Long, senior policy analyst at the Center for Economic Policy and Research. Prior to joining CEPR, Guillaume held several cabinet positions in the government of Ecuador, including Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Culture, and Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent. Most recently, he served as Ecuador's permanent representative to the UN in Geneva. You can follow Guillaume at Guillaume Long, and you can find his writing and more about CEPR at CEPR.net. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is blueberries mm. in a 2018 Healthline article, which we'll be referencing for several more months. Uh, the 23 best hangover foods, which has already suggested watermelon, honey, and crackers. 
not together but separately, as Hangover Cures registered dietitian Lizzie Strait writes, blueberries are rich in nutrients that fight inflammation in your body, which comes in handy if you have a hangover. And Lizzie cites the paper, anti-inflammatory effect of the blueberry anthocyanins, malvidin-3-glucoside and malvidin-3-galactoside in endothelial cells. She also recommends. She also mentions the research effects of alcohol hangover on cytokine production in healthy subjects, where a study of 20 men found that blood levels of various inflammatory compounds increased after alcohol consumption. Thus, eating blueberries after having too much to drink may help fight related inflammation. Makes this week's hangover cure blueberries. I sent that over on Friday because I knew that there was going to be a whole bunch of pronunciation things you're going to have to look up. I was challenging you, Alex, and you passed. With flying The colors. key to all that stuff is yeah. just sound confident. I don't know what those <laughs> words... I didn't look it up. I don't know what those words mean. You say it confidently, and then only people way smarter than you are going to know the difference. A friend of mine told me that in learning a foreign language, he said the most important thing to learn is how to mumble in that language, and people believe you. And he said it worked in Germany. And if it works in Germany, it works everywhere, Alex, says. We've learned. This is not the media. This is is how this weekend I I posted that I caught the porch pirates stealing our mail and that I pretty much had given up on caring about my personal appearance as I sat on the back deck wearing nothing but mirrored sunglasses, a bathrobe, and boxers with glow-in-the-dark condoms on them. I also posted that Joe Biden is very busy working on selecting a horrible vice presidential candidate, and I posted that as free content so social industry billionaires could be even more wealthy. To be honest, I don't know why I posted it or why I post anything so these uber-wealthy can get even more rich. Other than to get the word out about the show, there's no real point. Like, my opinion is so freaking important. After I posted, Joe Biden is very busy working on selecting a horrible vice presidential candidate... I figured maybe a few close friends would appreciate it, and that would be it, doing nothing to expand our audience again. In fact, I forgot all about it. I went out back on the deck, put on my robe, mirrored sunglasses, and glow-in-the-dark boxer shorts, had some coffee and something between brunch and lunch, I don't know, blunch, and was pelted with clues by my girly from the Sunday crossword. A while later, going back inside to finish research on today's guest, as I was forwarded an article of his that has yet to be published, but we will be discussing later on today's show, I found out that a lot more people enjoyed what I thought was my very dull and obvious comment than I figured. Apparently, lots of people believe Joe Biden is actually very busy working on selecting a horrible vice presidential candidate. By looking at the Democratic Party's history of picking vice presidential candidates since World War II, it's easy to understand why many may have misgivings about the party's ability to select the kind of candidate who can actually help win an election in November. I doubt Harry Truman was the linchpin to FDR's 1944 electoral victory. He probably could have won with Hitler as his running mate. But, you know, who knows? And Truman ended up dropping the first atomic bomb, and he did it unnecessarily twice. So, great selection. Adlai Stevenson was the next post-war Democrat to select his Veep candidates. I don't know who John Sparkman was, and I only know the name Estes Kefauver, because it's so weird, it sounds like that of a Supreme Court justice nominee, like Merrick Garland, Garland, which sounded so scotusy. The moment I heard his name, I knew he would be the nominee by Obama. I know Kefauver was a populist progressive, but, I mean, really, that's about all I know about him. After that, JFK nominated that tyrant of the Senate LBJ, who turned out to be a racist and still willing to sign the Civil Rights Act into law if it meant winning elections. Next was Hubert Humphrey, who selected Edmund Muskie, a congressman who ran for president during the primaries, but his campaign was derailed by a fake letter written by President Nixon's Dirty Tricks campaign, including Roger Stone, that claimed Muskie had insulted Canadians by calling them Canucks, which is something you do not do. When he was shown the letter, the Washington Post reported that Muskie cried, although many other reports who were witnessing the same moment said no such tearing up took place. Nonetheless, Muskie immediately bowed out of the presidential of the his own presidential campaign but eventually was nominated as vice president for Humphrey. Then there was the exceptional selection of Thomas Eagleton by George McGovern which clearly helped out McGovern's campaign. Jimmy Carter could have beat Gerald Ford with almost anyone, don't get me wrong, unlike 
FDR, he probably could not have won with Hitler as his running mate, but most anyone else. So he hedged his bets against anti-Southern attitudes in the North and picked Minnesota's Walter Mondale. When Mondale would run four years later, he would select the first woman vice presidential candidate, Geraldine Ferraro, but her husband's connections to the outfit did not help beat Ronald Reagan. Then Mike Dukakis, fearing he was still too far to the left, he wasn't even left-leaning, selected the center-right Lloyd Benson, whose shellacking of Dan Quayle in the VP debate had absolutely no outcome on the presidential election. Clinton, of course, picked his neoliberal golfing buddy, Al Gore, so they could usher in an era of Republican pro-business economic and law enforcement policies that led to massive inequality and mass incarceration while praising Reagan for his revolution. Gore chose a Republican and Joe Lieberman to make certain the rank and file knew the DNC had completely abandoned them. Kerry chose John Edwards, who seemed progressive, but in reality was a ticking time bomb whose candidacy did not help at all. Obama chose Biden, who was a leftover from Clinton neoliberalism and has had a long career of helping Wall Street and funding from corporations and the tax haven that is Delaware. And Hillary Clinton chose Tim Kaine, which you probably do not remember because it was an attempt to have a candidate who was more moderate than Hillary. And that's an impossible task the party was able to actually manage by nominating the incredibly fence-sitting Kaine. So now suddenly Joe Biden's vice presidential candidate selection is so important because we know from that illustrious history of the party uh, making great Veep choices, whoever it is will pull Joe over the top and clinch his victory this November. Democratic Party loyalists, however, do not seem to be aware of that history of unexciting candidates meant to assuage the right of any fears the Democratic Party has become some sort of communist party. After I posted, Joe Biden is very busy working on selecting a horrible vice presidential candidate. The responses came in hot and heavy from Democratic loyalists. What an a-hole post. F off. Obnoxious thread. 30-day snooze for you for attacking Democrats. Why? Because she's a female? You're an idiot. Well, this has to be the dumbest post I've seen today. Congratulations. And my favorite, this post is not called for. One commenter posted, seriously, is this supposed to be serious? If so, you're a part of the problem, and how the hell did you get on my friends list? I replied, Biden will lose votes from those supporting the uprising if he chooses a prosecutor. He'll also lose support if he picks someone who supported the war on terror. I'm sorry if being critical of Joe Biden leads to you no longer being my friend. However, nothing is above criticism, except pudding. To which someone replied, what uprising? And you are definitely part of the problem, you psycho. What the F is the point of this post other than to bitch and sow discord? I shouldn't have, but I answered. The point was to point out that Joe Biden, like Hillary, will make a poor vice presidential selection, as bad as the choice the DNC made of presidential candidates, neither of which accurately reflects the policies of their rank and file. So nothing new, I guess. To which I received an F off then. Many assume the post Joe Biden is very busy working on selecting a horrible vice presidential candidate meant that I was supporting President Trump in his re-election bid. Others believed I was not accepting the primary results and that I should and that I should accept those results. In the statement Joe Biden is very busy working on selecting a horrible vice presidential candidate, there's nothing about who I was supporting or the primaries. And Democrats, your party did steal the California primary from Bernie Sanders, which ended Bernie's candidacy, and you can read all about that in Greg Palace's new book, How Trump Stole 2020. But Democratic Party loyalists who will vote for anyone as long as they are a Democrat, never holding them up to a higher standard and willing to be the reliable base the Democrats don't have to do anything to help because they are already taking their vote for granted, they have their built-in reaction to any criticism of their party, a party that for them is above criticism, which is really too bad. Had they been critical, maybe the Democrats wouldn't have dove headlong into neoliberalism, which is just pro-business, anti-public conservatism with a neo in, on the front. Had they been critical, maybe Obama would have actually created the universal health care he promised instead of the market-based solution with mandatory payments that helped the insurance industry net record profits, all while loyalists cheered Obamacare as a massive victory and not as what it is, a failure to provide universal health care. And the vast majority of Democrats want universal health care, but the DNC does not, and they made sure you know that by not putting it in 
the 2020 platform, which again disagrees with the rank and file on many policy issues. Look, I know the Democratic Party is not the party of the left. We don't have one of those in the U.S. We have a far-right party teetering on fascism and a centrist party that wants to do everything it can to not change anything. That this normal, even before the pandemic, was just fine. There was nothing wrong. America was already great. But there's this theory on the far right, as described by, I swear to God, this guy's name is fake, Fred Palm of Roscommon in the Houghton Lake Resort, or apparently the Democratic Party plan of Nancy Pelosi is she tried to oust Trump because of his lack of cognitive ability. Trump tested that he does not have Alzheimer's, yet, which makes Trump a genius in Trump's book, but Biden has not taken that test, goes the theory. Pelosi was going to use the 25th Amendment to take Trump out of office, and she has the same plans for Biden. The moment Biden is inaugurated, Pelosi, as the plan goes, will deem Biden incompetent, and the vice president will all of a sudden be sitting in the Oval Office. Given the history of vice presidential nominations' impact on the outcome of presidential elections, like it is every four years, the naming of the nominee is pretty much all media hype with little real on-the-ground importance and significance. Unless this Trojan horse plan that Fred Palm is talking about is going to take place. So you got to wonder, who cares? And why the hell did I waste my time pointing out what seemed to be the obvious? Joe Biden is very busy working on selecting a horrible vice presidential candidate. Do Democratic loyalists really think people will not vote Joe because I posted Joe Biden is very busy working on selecting a horrible vice presidential candidate? Is that how precarious and fragile his candidacy truly is? Because if it is, then Trump will definitely be re-elected. And for the next four years, we can sit here and continue to say, as we have been saying since 1996, this is hell. Coming up, a slow-motion coup is taking place in Ecuador ahead of next February's election. We'll also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests. We have some people to thank for joining us on Patreon, as well as supporting This Is Hell in other ways. Completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. Since Lenin Moreno succeeded Rafael Correa as president of Ecuador, Moreno completely switched his democratic socialist political stance to one of embracing neoliberalism, leading to, of course, an increase in poverty and inequality, followed by his government's challenges to political dissent in the democratic process in order to fix the upcoming presidential election and ensure a second term for Moreno. Here to tell us how and why all this is happening and what it could mean for all of Latin America and potentially the rest of the world, Guillaume Long is a senior policy analyst at the Center for Economic Policy and Research. Welcome to This Is Hell, Guillaume. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. You can follow Guillaume at Guillaume Long. He has writing at Center for Economic Policy and Research. You can go there to CEPR.net and find all of his work. Prior to joining CEPR, Guillaume held several cabinet positions in the government of Ecuador, including Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Culture, and Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent. Most recently, he served as Ecuador's permanent representative to the United Nations in Geneva, and you held these positions within the Korea administration, correct? Yes, that's right. As tele- I mean, apart from uh, Ambassador of the UN, um, Moreno named me as his ambassador, as his representative to the UN, but I I quit six months into the job in disagreement with Moreno's U-turn on policy. As Telesur reported back on July 22nd, Ecuador's Unity to Win Front, which is a coalition of progressive social organizations, rejected the decision of the National Electoral Council to grant 10 days to the Social Commitment Force to assume the defense of former President Rafael Correa in an administration administrative process that could eliminate his participation in the 2021 elections. Through a statement, the Unity to Win denounced that the Electoral Council decision occurs because of the political pressures that Landon Moreno administration and mainstream media exert to leave the former leftist president out of the electoral contest. Why does the media not want a leftist former president to run for office? Who controls the media? Yeah, so the media, I would argue in many parts of the world, but certainly certainly in Latin America and in Ecuador, 
uh, is essentially a media that belongs to um, very narrow plutocratic elite uh, circles. And in Ecuador, the media is very linked to speculative financial capital, so to the banking sector mainly. When we got to power in 2007, when Correa was elected in 2006 and came to power in 2007, four out of the five main uh, television stations in Ecuador were owned by banks. So you can imagine when we um, you know, uh, moved away from uh, neoliberalism and started to regulate capital and started to fight uh, tax evasion and bringing money back from uh, tax havens and offshore hidden secret accounts and all that. You know, the, the, the biggest newspaper in Ecuador, um, his head, its headquarters uh, was in the Cayman Islands, right? So these people uh, were not having, that's just one example, uh, economic policy, but generally speaking, they were unhappy with uh, progressive government and, um, uh, you know, the return of uh, sort of um, a national uh, project, a, a national project that was in favor of uh, you know, the Ecuadorian people with a sovereign project moving away from um, being, you know, the U.S.'s backyard and uh, all sorts of policies aimed at redistributing wealth and reducing uh, poverty and inequality, which implied having a, a taxation system, which was previously uh, non-existent. So, you know, um, taxation, which is you know 20% of GDP in Ecuador, it's much less than what it is in the U.S. and even less than what it is in the European Union, but still, uh, you know, a taxation system that was previously uh, non-existent and therefore, you know, elites opposing it and therefore the media opposing it. So that's kind of, uh, I would say, the, the, the main reason why uh, the very right-wing media in Ecuador uh, has, has been pushing back against progressives and against Correa's government for, for 10 years. It was a very tense and polarized situation between the Correa government and the media, but it was, I would say, a, a situation in which the media was free to express itself. There was certainly no censorship. There was no repression of journalism or the media or anything like that. It was just the media was the opposition. The opposition in terms of part, political parties was very weak. So the media played that role, which is not necessarily the role the media should play, but it filled that political vacuum and the media the big corporate media became the main opposition to the Correa government. So what explains his election then in 2006? If the media is so anti-Korea, what does that say about either Korea's popularity or what does it say about the power of the media when he was able to not only win election, but win re-election? You were saying that they were playing the opposition the whole 10 years he was in office. But what does that say about the power of the media or the popularity of Korea when he was able to get elected the first time and get re-elected a second time? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think Correa took everyone by surprise, including the media. Uh, maybe they hadn't quite, the media hadn't quite, uh, you know, grasped the full extent of Correa's radicalism. Um, but I think more importantly, um, Ecuador was going through such dire times. If you look at the decade prior to Correa's election, 1996 to 2006, there were seven presidents in 10 years, right? Now, in Ecuador, just like in the United States, um, presidents are supposed to be elected for four years. So you can imagine seven, seven presidents in 10 years, three impeachments slash coups, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, really bad political instability. Some people even spoke of a failed state. I mean, most failed states are very violent. And you, you tend to imagine, you know, to failed states tend to be conceptualized in terms of like civil war, violence, and so on and so forth. So in Ecuador, wasn't, that wasn't the case. But certainly you had institutional collapse, huge corruption, um, loss of sovereignty with a major U.S. military base in Ecuador, and a massive banking crisis in 1999 uh, with uh, 17 banks going bust uh, and people's savings being frozen. So people being unable to take money out of their bank accounts with, as a result, a massive wave of uh, migration, people leaving Ecuador, this time not to the United States, but to Europe, a massive wave of migration to Spain and Italy in particular. So, you know, a major collapse of Ecuador as a nation state with 
uh, you know, interesting cultural uh, repercussions such as a, a loss of, of self-esteem. You know, to be Ecuadorian prior to Correa's election was, was was not great. You know, people were would look down on Ecuador, and people were so when. Correa campaigns, and this is a, uh, a, a, it's important to understand Correa's accession to power both as a leftist uh, and, you know, as a, a project of social redistribution and reducing poverty and inequality, but also as a refoundational moment of the state, right? To, 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 to the rebirth of, of, of the nation state project. And so I think the media were, you know, were, um, just as the rest of the elites, very delegitimized by this by this stage, um, and yeah, I mean they weren't. I think they were taken off guard, and they only really got their act together in terms of becoming a formal opposition a few months within the Correa presidency. But by this time, you had a constituent process with a new constitution on the way. With you know, soon Correa had a very strong political party with a two-thirds majority in, in the National Assembly in uh, Ecuador's Congress. Yeah, and so yeah, they were essentially taken off guard. And uh, last week on Wednesday, July 29th, an organization called Progressive International released a statement entitled Urgent Call for Free and Fair Elections in Ecuador, which was signed by PI council members, including past guests on our show, Noam Chomsky, Yanis Varoufakis, Vijay Prasad, as well as foreign minister under Brazil's President Lula, Kelso Amarim, and Aruna Roy, who founded India's Workers and Peasants Strength Union, and many others. PI gives its history by explaining in December 2018 the Democracy in Europe movement and the Sanders Institute issued an open call to all progressive forces to form a common front. It is time for progressives of the world to unite. So what they do is they are calling on uh, the United Nations to take urgent action to restore democratic rights in Ecuador following the electoral authorities' refusal to register Fuerza Compromiso Social, the party that is associated with former president and PI council member Rafael Correa, in Ecuador's forthcoming presidential elections next February. Why the UN? You were a member, you worked at the UN, you were represented Ecuador at the UN. Why not go to the Organization of American, American States? Do you believe the UN could ensure free and fair elections in Ecuador? Yeah, so it's very sad, but there's been a kind of complicit silence on behalf of the international community, <clears throat> generally speaking, uh, on Latin America. I mean, Latin America is going through uh, a very dark time of its uh, history, I think. In the last uh, few years, there's been a real uh, slide towards authoritarian rule in Latin America. Um, <clears throat> the neoliberal project is back on the cards, but it's, it's, it's authoritarian in nature because people don't want it. Um, uh, when they, people have had a chance to vote in favor or against the neoliberal project, they've clearly voted against it. Uh, Argentina is a good example. The IMF went there and um, you know, orchestrated a, a, a massive uh, neoliberal structural adjustment program when President Macri was in power. As soon as there were elections, you know, people have voted for uh, the Peronists to be back in power because they didn't want to go back to the old days of IMF fundamentalism of the 1980s and 1990s, which in Latin America, everywhere in Latin America, was uh, two decades of um, rising inequality and huge social tensions and a lot of the problems, in fact, even linked to insecurity and gang violence and narco-trafficking, all sorts of things that are happening today are essentially a consequence of those two decades, 1980s and 1990s. So Latin Americans, when they've had a chance, a democratic possibility, they've essentially, essentially voted for progressives. Um, now, in order to counter that, uh, the, the right and the hard right with this neoliberal project has essentially tried to subvert uh, the course of democracy. So, you know, in Brazil, they barred Lula from running in order to, for the right to win. Uh, uh, in Bolivia right now, they're trying to block the most uh, popular party, Evo Morales' party, the MAS, from running and its candidates from running. And in Ecuador, you're seeing a similar situation whereby they're trying to bar uh, Correa from being physically present in Ecuador because they know he's the most popular politician and uh, banning his political party from running in the February 2021 elections. Um, so, you know, you're starting to see progressive sectors of the international community. You mentioned uh, the Progressive International that's, uh, that are starting to, 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 yeah, to make noise and to uh, their opinion on this. 
but uh, multilateral institutions uh, have yet to say anything. The OAS is essentially, um, the Secretary General of the OAS, uh, Luis Almagro, is essentially in Trump's pockets. He's was just re-elected with the, the bullying support of, 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 of uh, the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo, touring Latin America and saying you have to vote for this man or else. So the OAS is not going to be, uh, you know, sort of uh, ensuring that the democratic process is respected and that free and fair elections are held in Ecuador. So it's an, it's an uphill struggle. I mean, what is going on in Ecuador is that people are more and more in favor of a sort of progressive return. Uh, <clears throat> the current Moreno administration in the best of polls is between 15 and 18% approval ratings, which is the lower, one of the lowest approval ratings for any sitting president since the return to democracy from military rule in 1979. So it's, you know, one of the least popular governments in contemporary Ecuadorian history. Uh, COVID-19 mismanagement has been terrible. The neoliberal austerity has made things worse. Um, and this political persecution through lawfare of the opposition has really made the government unpopular. So if there are free and fair elections in February, then uh, the likelihood is that you're going to have a progressive comeback in Ecuador, in Ecuador, Correa or Correa allies or a broader platform even, hopefully a much broader platform uh, of progressives uh, returning to power in February. So considering his low popularity numbers, but at the same time, the many attempts he's making right now, so it will be illegal and impossible for Rafael Correa to run for president in February 2021. Do those low popularity numbers make any difference whatsoever? Can't he just through the judiciary, which he has taken over, simply ensure his own reelection no matter how unpopular he is? Yeah, so obviously that's exactly what uh, Moreno's doing. He's trying to block Correa from being a, a candidate. Uh, is speeding up this uh, really arbitrary process against Correa based on fake evidence. And, you know, it's, it's really, it, it looks bad. Uh, but obviously his low approval ratings don't help him, right? I mean, you, if you do that and you're in a really position of strength or a lot of political support, then you might get away with it. But if you uh, pervert the course of justice in such a, uh, you know, a blatant way without any, uh, without any popular support and it's just the elite pact and some, some media that, that's holding things together, it becomes more and more difficult. So you're starting elites, uh, you're starting to see elites getting uh, sort of dividing over this a little bit more. Obviously, as the election date is coming forward, also elites have their own candidates and they're starting to fight each other. So, you know, the possibility of a judge uh, doing what's right and not being threatened into, uh, you know, in this, because now we're in the appeals process. And they still, Correa could still formally be candidate um, unless they manage to exhaust the appeal process until September 18th. So it's kind of the, the clock is ticking and, you know, they're, they're trying to exhaust the appeals process as fast as possible in order to definitely bar him from being a candidate before September 18th. But, you know, you could potentially have a judge, an honest judge, say, right, I'm not going to be bullied. I'm going to do the right thing. And obviously... Uh, Moreno's uh, low approval ratings and the division of the elite, growing division of the elites uh, could uh, open the door to that. The second way they're trying to, of course, weaken uh, the return of progressives to power is by banning the party, not just Correa as the figurehead, but the party. Uh, and this is, you know, banning, barring the main opposition party from elections. It's like, it's not, there's no ambiguity there, right? It's outright authoritarian. So this is uncomfortable as well. And you're seeing sectors on the right saying, well, you know, we really need to, to win against progressives. We really need to win against Correistas in the ballot box, because if we just impose one candidacy and win that way, you know, we're going to have four years of political instability. You know, the elections are not going to be uh, deemed uh, legitimate by, by the people. We might even face political violence. And so, so you're having a growing, you know, it's not, it's the, 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 yeah, it's, it, it's increasingly difficult for this authoritarian process to, to, to work without having internal tensions. and stuff. So we're working hard and fortunately with some interna growing international solidarity to, to, to show how authoritarian this is and to try and find cracks in this, in this wall and, and, and push for free and fair elections, which is the only thing we're asking for, free and fair elections for February, because we're sure that with free and fair elections, I mean, the outcome is, is pretty certain. I mean, certainly... 
uh, we would be the biggest party in Congress, potentially with a parliamentary majority. Uh, and, you know, the chance of the definite place in, in a runoff in a presidential election and the chances of winning that runoff are quite high. So how much of a surprise was it that Lenin Moreno turned to neoliberalism after becoming elected president of Ecuador? He was Korea's vice president within the democratic socialist movement that he was representing, that Korea was representing in his two terms of office. Were there any signs prior to his being elected and then switching from democratic socialism to neoliberalism. Were there any signs that he might be a person who would be switching to neoliberalism? Because something that's been pointed on our, out on our show many times by our past guests is that neoliberalism is never really elected into power. It only comes into power and then is announced as happened with, at the very beginning, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I mean, I think there are varying degrees. This is certainly... <clears throat> a very uh, unusual transition to neoliberalism. If you look at the others in Latin America, you know, you'd had you know, the left in, in, in power for 10 or even in some cases 15 years. So there was some kind of political fatigue. Then you also had a commodities decline in 2015, 2016, which hurt the Latin American economies. So, you know, some, some of the right got in through elections. Argentina is a good example. In other cases, there was some lawfare in Brazil and, you know, jail, the, the one who would easily win the elections, Lula, and get Bolsonaro elected. In other cases, you actually had coups, you know, so going back to Honduras and then Paraguay, but also I would argue in Brazil against Dilma and certainly against Evo Morales in Bolivia last year. So there were different formats for that transition to neoliberalism. The Ecuadorian uh, format is a really, in, it's an insider's job, right? It's a really interesting one. Uh, it's a Trojan horse. Uh, and to answer your question, uh, no, clearly, the, you know, the members of Alianza País, the ruling political Correa's party at the time, uh, were taken by surprise. Otherwise, they wouldn't have chosen Lenny Moreno. I mean, sure, there was some understanding that he signified a move to the center a little bit, that he wouldn't be as radical as Correa. But, you know, uh, after 10 years of, of Correa's uh, government, um, you know, there was a big discussion in the party as to whether maybe, uh, you know, things could be stabilized and further institutionalized for four years, and then maybe there could be a radicalization four years later. The conditions weren't exactly the same as they were a few years before, again, because of commodities decline and some political fatigue and so on. So, you know, there, there was some understanding that he wouldn't be exactly the same. And there was no desire for him to be exactly the same. And I mean, you know, there's total respect for him to be his own man. In fact, Correa decided to leave the country uh, so as not to be an impediment. He actually said this. He said, you know, I'm, you know, I would probably uh, stand in the way. Uh, my, my wife is from Belgium. I'm going to go back to, to, to Belgium for, for a few years, let Moreno do his own thing. I really don't want to be, you know, always asked my opinion. And so you, there's some, you know, you, Moreno has shown some respect. But very early on, we saw that this had been part of a plan all along. I mean, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but some conspiracies do exist. And I think this is a clear case of, you know, uh, well, I mean, a very well planned out uh, transition to neoliberalism. You know, you could see it the way it uh, uh, panned out in the media. Every Wednesday, there was a new uh, corruption scandal against the Correa administration. You know, some of these uh, allegations led to nowhere judicially because they were abandoned along the way because they amounted to nothing. But, you know, the, the damage had been done in the media on the Wednesday. And so, you know, and that entrenched that trans transition away away from Correismo. Yeah, I mean it's it's an amazing it's it's a, in a way a very successful transition, uh, sort of a Shakespearean treason really. It's very interesting in many regards, uh, but it's starting uh, to uh, face um, big big problems because the economy is being um, going badly, and of course the COVID crisis has been. Uh, very uh, badly mismanaged, and uh, IMF now back in Ecuador is very unpopular, and so you'll see it, it may not work. Uh, it's certainly showing signs of not working. But for the first two years, it was a very successful witch hunt and a very successful uh, transition away from uh, progressive rule to uh, authoritarian, ne uh, yeah, neoliberal authoritarianism. You write that back in 2017, Moreno successfully stripped Correa of Alianza País, the party he, that Correa had started in 2006 in his successful bid for the presidency. As Korea's former vice president, Moreno knew that in order to go on the offensive against Korea, he 
needed to neutralize his party. The opportunity arose when Moreno's leadership of Alianza País was challenged by several Creole loyalists, and another favorable judicial ruling gave Moreno complete control over the party. Of course, Alianza País was Correista in essence, and once its historic leader was sidelined, its members jumped ship. But Moreno's goal was never really to have a strong party of his own. His aim was to make the biggest political force in Ecuador partyless. This he achieved. Did Korea in any way want a partyless movement? Was the party in any way a burden or a distraction or an obstacle to Korea for implementing Koreista? No, not not at all. I think uh, uh, this was the the biggest uh, blow, the biggest attack on progressives was when Moreno successfully, again through this judicial ruling, uh, another favorable judicial ruling. There have been a few through, you know, Moreno's been increasingly controlling ju- the judiciary. Uh, but this judicial ruling took away the party that Correa had, had, had created in 2006. It took it away from Correa and handed it over to Moreno. Um, and of course, Moreno they couldn't really use the party because everybody was incensed, all the, his voters were incensed, all the members of the party left the party. But his aim was to basically leave Correa partyless, uh, and because he knew that that party was a very strong, powerful instrument of opposition, and it would create problems for, you know, for what he had in mind. Uh, and ever since that November 2017 judicial ruling, uh, Correa and his followers have been trying to create a new party so that they have some kind of political organization from which to uh, campaign and uh, carry through their message and also participate in elections. And this possibility has been systematically denied by the government-controlled electoral authorities. Um, So it's been a real challenge. There have been several uh, attempts for the main opposition force. It's not a minor uh, political force, right? For the main opposition force to have a political representation, a political party, uh, but it's been denied systematically. And so eventually... Correa had to join a pre-existing political party. And you can imagine that was challenging because the, the, the people who, who had this political party said, well, you can join, but, you know, there's, there's a negotiation taking place and so on and so forth. And that was the only way that uh, Correa could, you know, be part of a party. Uh, so the July 19 decision, which you mentioned at the beginning of this show, uh, was uh, essentially uh, to ban the party from actually existing. So take it, take it off the, the, the register of political parties, uh, you know, a party that was created prior to Correa joining it was essentially barred from existing so as to uh, block it from participating in the upcoming February elections. So well, the, the major fight in Ecuador right now is, to tr- is for the existence of this party. Yeah? If the party exists, it can run in elections, and if it can run in elections, you know, it's likely to do very well. So, uh, you know, there's a, it's a huge institutional fight um, and a judicial fight over trying to get rid of this party because uh, if the party exists, well, you know, it's likely to win, a, again, a parliamentary majority, uh, be, uh, uh, you know, in a presidential runoff and even win the presidency. You're right that the international communities, you, you actually you argue this in a piece that's going to be related, uh, released later this week, uh, you argue that the international community's complicit silence clearly helps Moreno, but Ecuadorians may be less easily subdued. Last October, popular anger erupted against the government's IMF-supported neoliberal structural adjustment program, resulting in the country's largest protests in decades. The government only barely regained control over the situation after brutally cracking down on the protests. Eleven people were killed. At least 1,500 were injured and over 1,200 were detained. But wouldn't Korea, if he were still president, have to do as the IMF says as well? Is this not a Moreno or a Korea problem, but an Ecuador problem caused by the IMF? No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that when Korea handed over the country to Moreno in 2017, uh, the economy was doing well. It had had two difficult years out of the 10 years of Korea's government. The, the last two years were the most difficult because of the decline of the international terms of trade and oil prices collapsed and Ecuador still exports oil, but also other prices of commodities collapsed, you know, coffee, bananas, shrimp, so on. So there were, those years were difficult. And there was an important earthquake in 2016 as well that hurt the economy. 
uh, significantly. But in 2017, Correa handed over the country to Moreno, and the year 2017 was a year of growth. Uh, you know, accounts were in order. Uh, foreign debt was, you know, below the Latin American average. You know, this was not a major crisis. Uh, and and the difficult years had been handled really well. Actually, well, I mean, we could go into more detail, but it's the it's the first time there's an external shock, as in a sharp drop in the uh, price of Ecuador's exports, without a rise in inequality and poverty. So that in itself is a huge achievement. And Correa did all this through uh, countercyclical policies, going against austerity, going against neoliberalism, public investment, uh, endogenous growth. You know, the, the, the reverse recipe, you know, as near, you know, new structural Keynesian economics, if you prefer. Um, so, no, I, 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 you know, I think that when Moreno came along, he solved this idea of a political, of an economic crisis, brought the IMF on, which wasn't at all necessary, you know, said that there was a budget deficit, which, you know, a 5% budget deficit after two years of difficulty is not a huge problem. You know, if you look at this country, the United States is probably has a 20% budget deficit right now. And in the European Union, you know, the, the traditional 3% max on budget deficit has never really been respected. And most European countries are around 9, 10, 11, 12% budget deficit right now. So Ecuador had this 5% budget deficit, which was higher than it had been two years prior, sure. But it was certainly not a cause for bringing in the IMF and saying, you know, the apocalypse was nigh, uh, was nigh and that, you know, the, the neoliberalism was the only way to survive this. No, this was part of a, of, of a plan to, you know, uh, benefit the elites, uh, you know, move away from the social policies and the economic policies uh, of uh, the Korea uh, decade and you know, move back into the U.S. backyard because this, at the end of the day, is also a geopolitical project. And it's not just Ecuador that's been affected. It's the whole region, right? Uh, the whole region that it created uh, UNASUR, a kind of South American union, a union of South American nations and was interacting with the world in a more sovereign fashion, in a more united fashion. Uh, now all this is you know, uh, been overrun, really. And you have this typical divide and rule policies with Latin American countries doing race, race to the bottom competition amongst each other and back into the kind of good old fashioned bilateralism with the United States. So I think it's, it's important to understand the return to neoliberalism as part of a regional geopolitical project and to understand it in those terms as well. Does that IMF agreement that Moreno made create a burden for all future governments, administrations, and presidencies in Ecuador? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's certainly, uh, if there's a return of progressives uh, in power in May, I mean, the elections would be in February, but the, the changeover of government would be in May, uh, it's going to be very challenging because the situation is really, really bad. We don't exactly know what's going to happen, but this year, I mean, it would have been hard anyway because of the current pandemic, sure. But the way the, the Ecuadorian government has mismanaged it and uh, the huge rise of foreign debt and the IMF loans, but also uh, growth in bonds that have been issued, yeah, it means a real economic uh, and social and uh, public health sanitary challenge for the, for the next government. Something similar in a way, but I would say I would argue worse than what the um, Alberto Fernandez presidency has had to face after four years of neoliberal Macri in Argentina, where they, you know, they arrived and suddenly they had to face the biggest debt in the IMF history, right? $57 billion owed by Argentina and what, you know, and they had been against that loan all along. And what do you do? You've inherited, you know, you have to uh, real in the real, live in the real world and deal with it and try and renegotiate. So sure, for the next government, if it's a progressive government, there'll be a lot of renegotiation taking place. But, what, but you know, if we've done it before, you know, in a way. You know, when Correa came to power, he was firm. He said, you know, these, we're not going to prioritize foreign debt over our people's livelihoods, over, over uh, you know, the, the need to reduce poverty and inequality. And if you're firm with the markets, you can do I mean, we had a massive debt renegotiation in 2008, 2009 which are actually hailed by The Economist, the newspaper, which is not exactly a, a leftist, <laughs> leftist uh, newspaper, as the, Latin America's most successful debt renegotiation. Ecuador's 2008-2009 renegotiation was hailed as such by The Economist. So 
you know, it's doable if you're sovereign, if you're firm, if you're clever about it, if you're not fundamentalist in terms of your ideology, which unfortunately this government is, uh, you can do these things. But sure, it's going to be a major challenge. That so much needs to be rebuilt. You point, or the sorry, the PI, the Progressive International statement continues. We are alarmed by the electoral authorities' refusal to register Fuerza Compromiso Social, the party in which uh, Korea is now uh, hoping to be a vice presidential candidate, at the very least. This illegal maneuver by the electoral authorities of Ecuador is not an isolated event; rather, it is an alarming advancement of a strategy of political persecution against the progressive forces of Ecuador and the acceleration of legal warfare, lawfare, against political opposition in the region of Latin America more broadly. This is the same term used when it came to what happened in Brazil that we were covering back in 2015 in the Operation Lava Jato affair that used the law to take down two elected presidents in Brazil, replace them with a far-right president who has links to members of a former military junta, a president who praises the past junta, who is devastating to the Amazon and the indigenous people when it comes to destroying their environment and the state's response to the pandemic, which has led to the nation having the second most deaths in the world. But people here in the States are not generally aware of what happened in Brazil or the role the U.S. played and continues to play in Latin America by implementing lawfare in order to replace progressive governments with those of the far right. How big of an obstacle is an unaware U.S. public to free and fair elections in Ecuador? How much does an uninformed U.S. public lead to the rise of the far right in Latin America with the support of presidential administrations from both U.S. political parties by not being aware of the process of lawfare. Yes, I think the good news is that, generally speaking, Latin Americans have been more and more aware. Uh, And that's that's been the key factor. So, you know, for the first time in Latin American history, you had 10, in some countries, 15 years of progressive governments in the first decade and a half of the 21st century. And that was essentially Latin Americans saying, enough is enough. Uh, this traditional way of inserting ourselves in the world and this traditional relationship with the United States hasn't worked for us, uh, and neoliberalism has been disastrous in the 80s and 90s. So I think Latin Americans have it in them, regardless of what the rest of the world does, to really say, you know, go back to understand that this, the last four years probably have been a a bleep, hopefully in history, a neoliberal uh, return, a, a bad taste in the mouth of what the 80s and 90s were, and that we need to move forward and be more intelligent about this. But sure, I mean, international circumstances could help Latin Americans in that process. And for sure, to answer your question, if U.S. audiences and U.S. people were more aware of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. policy towards Latin America in particular, uh, that would greatly help. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not the case. And you still have this kind of macho attitude to elections and, you know, the kind of nostalgia of U.S. Uh, you know, police policing role in the world, and uh, these, uh, st- you know, the U.S. is still stuck in in many regards in this kind of um, yeah Cold War rhetoric, uh, uh, the Cold War hangover, really, uh, particularly in Latin America. So you know, you see it when whenever Latin America diversifies its, its relations, and so over the last decade, it's diversified its relations, actually increasing relations with the EU, which is often not covered in the press but also clearly with China, you know, it's seen as a breach of, you know, of of the deal with the U.S., right? I mean, it's like you can only have relations with us, but you can't have relations with China. Well, why? Oh, uh, the Monroe Doctrine. Oh, uh, you know, the Western Hemisphere uh, is our backyard, so on and so forth. Well, no, Latin Americans don't want that surrogate relationship with the United States anymore. Uh, and I think, you know, um, the United States wouldn't want a surrogate relationship with anyone if it was, you know, if they were facing that situation. So it's fair enough. It's normal. It's not hostile. It doesn't have to be a, an act of hostility. It can be respectful. You know, when I was foreign minister, I always was very respectful with U.S. authorities. I had actually a good working relationship with uh, the, the State Department. But, you know, we, we always said, you know, we need a mutually respectful relationship and we want to have relations with the rest of the world. That doesn't have to threaten your national security. Um Unfortunately, you know, there's a deep culture there of empire and a deep ideology that underlies it, which didn't always make that possible. And it's very unfortunate. I think in the long run, it's not in the U.S. interest. I think in the long run, the U.S. will lose out, especially if the Chinese still have that amount of liquidity. The Chinese, the Chinese have not even been pushed out by this new neoliberal right. 
because the, even the new neoliberal right, which they're clearly pro-US and not pro-China, but they, you know, they've had to live with the new, you know, the global conditions uh, and in and, and the real world. And so I think in, in the long term, it, it does the service to, to, to the US, uh, to the US's interests, uh, not to understand that. And I think that would, it would be great if the US electorate could, uh, you know, make uh, US politicians accountable for uh, following uh, a more democratic uh, path towards Latin America, a more respectful path uh, towards Latin America. Um, actually, you'd see a lot less immigration. You'd see a lot, you know, a lot of the things, a lot, a lot, a lot less drugs. A lot of the things that uh, politicians complain uh, about are a consequence of uh, Latin America's underdevelopment, which itself is a consequence of all these geopolitical factors we're talking about. So. Yeah, I mean, that would definitely help. But I'm optimistic that Latin Americans themselves, um, without having to, to, you know, to beg for a change of paradigm, uh, you know, without having to uh, depend on uh, the goodwill of, of other nations, can, uh, you know, um, achieve development and improve their lot. And yeah, I think there's been a lot of big, uh, uh, yeah, a very steep learning curve, which has been very productive for Latin America in the last uh, in the last decade, fundamentally. We have been speaking with Guillaume Long, a senior policy analyst at the Center for Economic Policy and Research. We didn't get to touch on his article that he had written back in mid-April at the peak of the coronavirus and the pandemic outbreak in Ecuador and the Moreno administration's cover-up of what was happening within Ecuador. It's a fantastic article, and people should check out how Ecuador did respond to the coronavirus and it's just always really disturbing to me when I find when I remember that here in the United States, so few people know what the term lawfare is, what it is, how it was implemented, or even know what the term neoliberalism is, Guillaume. It's just always kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. One last one last question for you. And our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You wrote, there are other more structural and long-term problems related to the COVID-19 crisis, convinced of the need and under pressure by the IMF to reduce the size of the state. The Moreno government has made damaging cuts to public health. Public investment in health care fell from $306 million in 2017 to $130 million in 2019. What impact did the IMF have and how many deaths do you think we can hold the IMF responsible for? When it comes to COVID nineteen, not just in Ecuador, but their policies impact on the world. Yeah, I think the IMF is really guilty of um, pushing, or at least encouraging, uh, Latin American states, and in this case Ecuador, in making these terrible austerity cuts, and in our case, in the uh, public health sector, which had a dramatic effect on uh, the, pa- the, the, re- the state response to the pandemic COVID nineteen crisis. You know, we're going to see numbers being clarified in the next few months, but Ecuador was by far uh, the Latin American country that was most hit by uh, COVID deaths per capita, so not in absolute terms, because obviously Ecuador is smaller than Brazil, but uh, per capita, per million inhabitants. Uh, Ecuadorian authorities are only declaring a fraction of these uh, fatalities. So if you look at year on averages of of uh, the death toll, and you compare it to previous years, you know, we're probably looking at 25,000 deaths in a country uh, of, you know, 17 million inhabitants. Uh, that's a huge per capita death toll. And yeah, I think the IMF is uh, partly responsible. It's a great shame because the IMF was showing clear signs in the last decade of finally evolving, changing its tune, actually uh, supporting some of the public investment and some, you know, they were getting... But then we realized this was the kind of research center within the IMF, the think tank within the IMF. Uh, and they think a bit more than some of the people who are actually involved in the loans themselves, in the conditionalities that are imposed. And unfortunately, the people that are still lending the IMF money, uh, and of course, there is uh, the board of shareholders and the United States is one of them, uh, and they're probably pushing for these conditionalities as well. Unfortunately, those people haven't changed a bit since the disastrous policies of the, the policies of the 80s and 90s. And uh, yeah, I think it's uh, you know we can t- we can talk of economic crimes, and in this case, uh, economic crimes having an impact on on lives and deaths in, in in the COVID-19 crisis. So I think we need to hold the IMF 
responsible, and we need to to get the thinkers inside the IMF to start, uh, you know, having a, a bigger influence over the doers and over the the politicians. Uh, and, and if we do that, we'll we'll save a number of lives in Latin America and the world. Guillaume, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. Uh, prior to joining CEPR, Guillaume held several cabinet positions in the government of Ecuador, including Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Culture, and Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent. Most recently, he served as Ecuador's permanent representative to the United Nations in Geneva. So you should check out his writing because of his perspective when it comes to the United Nations and the letter from Progressives International to the High Commissioner on Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, about trying to get free and fair elections in Ecuador. Ecuador, which looks like it is experiencing a slow motion coup. You can follow Guillaume on Twitter at Guillaume Long. Thank you so much for being on our show. And I hope that we can have you back on our show again, because this has been a fascinating conversation. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Take care, Guillaume. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history, August 4th, 1964, 56 years ago, this Tuesday. The bodies of three murdered civil rights workers were found on a farm near Meridian, Mississippi. James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Mickey Schwermer had been working with the Freedom Summer campaign to register disenfranchised African Americans to vote. And again, this segment is called Rotten History, and our show is called This Is Hell. The three had been missing for more than six weeks since driving to the nearby town of Longdale to help investigate the recent burning of the Mount Zion Methodist Church. They had been pulled over in a small-town speed trap and then murdered by a lynch mob of local cops and members of the KKK who buried them using a bulldozer. Autopsies showed that Goodman and Schwerner, both white men from New York City, had each been shot once in the head. But Cheney, a black man from the local area, had been beaten, castrated, and shot three times. Eighteen white men, including a county sheriff and a deputy, were tried for a conspiracy to kill the young activists. And I'm betting they all got off scot-free. How about you? Only seven were convicted. Hey, seven, not bad for racist injustice in the U.S. South at the time, or now for that matter. The seven convicted would serve uh, serve sentences of no more than six years, though one man would later receive a life sentence for another lynching, so maybe having the first lynching on his record led to stiffer sentencing later on. That's kind of like justice. An eighth man was convicted in 2007 for leading the conspiracy in 2018. He died in prison at the age of 92. In Rotten History, August 7th, 1904, 160 years ago this Friday, a passenger train known as the Missouri Pacific Flyer was speeding through the Colorado countryside when it encountered a hailstorm so heavy that passengers could feel thunder shaking the train, and many were getting nervous. The engineer slowed the train, but he was intent on making it to the next station in the town of Pueblo so that passengers could disembark safely. Just as the train arrived at a bridge over a dry creek, the bridge was hit by a violent flash flood that washed over the bridge, separating some of the train cars and sent the locomotive hurtling into the river, dragging several passenger cars into the water with it. Makes you wonder if the engineer saw the dry creek bed, went for it anyway. Suddenly, wall of water came from nowhere. In one of the Pullman sleeping cars toward the back of the long train, a quick-thinking African-American porter named Melville Sales pulled an emergency air brake that instantly locked the wheels of his car and stopped it before it reached the bridge. In this way, he saved the lives of 29 people in the car and in the cars behind him. And despite that, I'm certain Sales experienced a lifetime of racism. But another 111 people were killed, and some of their bodies were later found as far as 10, 10 miles downstream. The bodies of 14 passengers were never found at all. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Alex, please tell us what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Uh, so that's uh, tomorrow on Tuesday. Cassie Thornton is back on the show to talk about her new book from Pluto Press, The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future. Do I have that yet? Uh, yeah, I just emailed it to you. Okay. Uh, then on Wednesday, same time, 10 o'clock central, we're going to have Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, also both past guests, Sweet. back on to talk about their book, Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. And then on Thursday, Jeffy, and then before that, William Shoki will be on to talk about a lot of his writing on South Africa and the ruling class for Africa is a country. Also on tomorrow's show, Alex will be revealing this week's question from hell, and we'll be reading some of your answers 
Thanks to Malcolm for joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can get an additional Friday podcast every week with a new monologue from me and an archived interview unavailable anywhere else but on Patreon. This past week, our interview that we played was from 2007 with Dr. Edward Rimes on racism within the U.S. media and culture, and I looked into the deep state of Comcast customer service. Also, thanks to Jacob, Justin, Dan, and Malcolm for going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, and getting some of the new This Is Hell swag, including the new black face mask, tote bag and trucker's cap trucker's cap looks really cool so does the mask i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host chuck mertz producing this week's show is alex jerry thanks to guillaume long today's guest alex jerry for producing thanks to ronaldo mcgaldi for rotten history and always a special thanks to theron hummiston and richard norwood for all of the work that they do behind the scenes we told you so this is hell Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>